The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to the new episode of the Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm BV editor Andrew Sacker, and today's episode is an interview with Kevin Devine. Kevin has long been one of my personal favorite songwriters. He's a true lifer. He's been making great music for the past 20 years, and actually, he's gearing up to celebrate the 20th anniversary of his career with two sold-out shows in Brooklyn this January, one at St. Vitus and one at Baby's All Right. Brooklyn Vegan is proudly presenting both shows, so we thought it'd be a great time to catch up with Kevin and just kind of reflect on everything that's happened over the past two decades of his career. Kevin always has a lot to say. This was no exception, and it was a really fun conversation as he touched on everything from being called emo at a time when the genre was stigmatized to nostalgia festivals to some of his favorite late career albums and more. Also, we ran into a slight technical difficulty during the episode, but it's very quick, so bear with us. And with that, here's our conversation with Kevin Devine. All right. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Andrew. Thank you. I'm going behind the curtain right away to tell people that I was supposed to talk to you yesterday and totally forgot. Totally forgot. Like it was a, I feel like part of whatever nominal, minimal brand I have is that I'm like <laughs> somewhat reliable. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not the case yesterday. So thank you. Nice to talk to you today. Yeah, nice to talk to you too. And, you know, again, totally cool. Happens to the best of us. It's well, you're no a nice man. At all. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so what's going on? How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm in my new apartment. You might end up hearing at various points like rustlings happening in the far distance. My partner and I moved in together. It's been like a rolling move for me. Um I'm sort of still in, still it's both all of it's South Brooklyn. I think I'm just going to be like tied to Bay Ridge of my own accord, probably forever. <laughs> it seems like that. I keep coming back South Brooklyn till I die. But um, I'm still, I have a six-year-old and I still have this other apartment. So I'm kind of like going back and forth between the two places until around Thanksgiving when I'm like properly here. So that's my domestic situation. Everything's pretty good there. Um and yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's a, it's an ever increasingly fascinating time to be a person, but I feel like I'm doing all right as far as we could be all as far as we could be doing. I'm okay. Yeah. How are you? Well, I'm glad to hear. It. Yeah, I'm pretty good too. I mean, um, can't complain. You know, same as always. Uh, still live in the same apartment. Um, you're on the other side of Brooklyn, is that correct? Like the yeah, North I'm in Ridgewood, so technically. Uh, oh, you're in Queens. Yeah. yeah. I met somebody the other night, actually, who was like generationally from Ridgewood, like had family back to, you know, the, I think the 60s or something. And I was like, that is a neighborhood that has witnessed, well, I mean, all of them have, but very significant change, especially in the last like 15 years, changed a lot. Well, yeah. Did you see that Time Out New York named it the fourth, fourth coolest neighborhood in the world? I did. 
in the world? No, I did not see that. It, it was so it was the only New York City neighborhood even on the list. Wow. Uh, yeah, and I am not excited about it. I don't want my rent to go up. Oh, no, um, I understand. Uh, but it's a surreal thing because you know, like, I, I mean, I don't. You know, obviously, I'm not really like an original, but when I moved here, it was like, you know, a little further away from stuff that was happening. Um, oh, for sure. I mean, when did you move there? Uh, what is it now? Like eight years ago. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, for sure. The first person I ever knew, I remember I had a friend in 2000, uh, let's say 2009, that was like, I live in Ridgewood. And I was like, I mean, you know, I had spent most of a decade puttering around Williamsburg or having rehearsal spaces there. And it even at that point started to like know a little bit about Greenpoint and parts of Bushwick. But I was like, what, where is, what is Ridgewood? And then I was like, oh, it's just like right there. Um, and it seemed pretty um, residential comparatively speaking at that point. Um, but I didn't realize it had been outed as one of the four coolest neighborhoods on earth. Yeah. That's a, that's a death sentence. My so, friend. Yeah, no, that's a, <laughs> And it's, you know, it's weird. I mean, it's like, just, I guess, to give the article some credit. I mean, it's true. There are like cool things opening up here. Like we have that new venue, TVI. Oh, uh, that's, I've been there actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, Nowadays is here. So like, I it's, it's it, there are things like that make Ridgewood, I guess, a hip spot, but it is still kind of residential. I mean, I live yeah. on an extremely residential street. It's very quiet, nice street that I live on. Um, I'm not even like, I can't even visibly see like a bar or anything from my porch step. You know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. Um, You'd like to keep it that way. Yeah. It's nice. It's nice to be close to a lot of stuff that happens, but then you can come home to something a little less more out of the way. You just touched upon, I mean, and, and I'm, and Bay Ridge, South Brooklyn, the closest I've ever lived was park slope, Mm -hmm. South slope. But most of my adult life has been in, the south side of the borough, which there's not, there might be, there are, we show up sometimes in magazine articles about like best Italian food or every once in a while, there's things like that, but you're not, we're not going to be in like, um, coolest neighborhood, I don't think. But, um, what I always liked about coming back, having rehearsal spaces in Williamsburg from like 2001 to like 17 was that I liked being there. I liked making stuff there. I, I liked sort of floating around being amongst the stuff, <laughs> the movement there. But I always, I don't know if it's an internal wiring thing or what, but I, I agree. I always liked coming home yeah. to a place that wasn't there. Now that's a little bit more extreme because sometimes it felt like going from here to there was like going from like, you know, Jersey to Connecticut or something going across all of Brooklyn as uh, we're alienating anybody here that is not actually a New York right. person, <laughs> but like that BQE crawl from like where I am to where you are, it's nine miles, but it's like 75 minutes easy or something like that. So, or if you take in the train, it's either going into Manhattan, then cutting across or you're suffering on the G from like ninth and fourth <laughs> all the way out. But uh, those days, this that happens less these days. In fact, the time I came out to see you, whenever that was last year for the thing. Uh, I think, was it last year or early this year? I can't remember. No, it had to be 2021. Yeah, it was 2021. That was like, 
I mean, that was a thing I was doing several times a week for like 15 years of my life, you know, or 12 years of my, whatever it was. And now it happens more like quarterly. And I'm like, and I, so I get to, and I would, I, I certainly, you know, but way better than me, but it does seem like Ridgewood's definitely not Williamsburg. Williamsburg has just, it's wild. Like the buildings kind of look, except for the stuff on the water. That's what's so funny about New York. Like the buildings kind of look the same in a lot of places, but what's actually in the buildings <laughs> has changed so radically that you're like, holy shit, this is confusing and more than a little sad if I think about it too hard. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, Williamsburg is like so different than it used to be. It's it's insane. Like, um, and also just like, as far as the sort of music scene goes, like when I first moved here, all the shows I was going to were kind of in Williamsburg and like now there aren't that many. I feel like, I feel like the, they have a lot of the venues that used to be there aren't there. And then there are way more venues like in Bushwick. Or totally. Something. Well, I would, I would also, this is going to, I mean, not that I think this is going to be either a, a surprise to whoever listens to this and is familiar with me or be a surprise to whoever is, you know, crazy or, or, or bored enough to listen to this that isn't familiar with me. But like, I would defer completely to you about that. I don't even know what the hell is out there anymore. Like, I feel like the last time I was really plugged in to things that were happening, like a level under something like Music Hall of Williamsburg in those neighborhoods was when it was like 285 Kent and Glasslands and all of that stuff was around. And that stuff's gone you know, kind of long gone at this point. And I like things that were, there was like a place called Trash Bar Lux or something like that on Grand. That's been gone forever. There's a place on like South Forth that was Rockstar Bar where bands used to play. But these, even saying these words out loud, this I've lost like the accordion thing that time does has really worked on my brain in such a way where I'm like, was that in 2005 or 2013? Or it certainly couldn't have been too much later than that. But kind of everything that's happened in Bushwick, I don't know at all. Like, I don't know any, like, I, I wouldn't know where to go to see, like, and that's not a, uh, I, I offer that neither as con self-condemnation nor badge I'm trying to affix to myself. It's just like, I don't even know, I don't know what's up there. You would be so much more aware. So if what you're saying is like, that's not happening in a way that you feel like it's attached to anymore, I believe it. I really do. All right. So we, we got technical difficulties, but we're going to pick back up. We were talking about Bushwick venues. Uh, did you have more to say or do you want me to? Certainly not, because all I was saying <laughs> is that I have no idea about any of them. So no. Well, I when the show ends, we'll talk. I'll, I'll give you some recommendations, <laughs> maybe somewhere to play. Um, yeah, that sounds good. But this, but this is a good transition because you have shows coming up at Williamsburg and Greenpoint venues. Uh, Baby's yes. All Right in Williamsburg, St. Vitus in Greenpoint. Yep. Um, and these are to celebrate the 20th anniversary of your career, which is one of the reasons we're talking. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. on that note, if you could go back in time and tell the mm -hmm. Kevin Devine of 2002 that you just released your 10th album and you're about to play some career spanning 20th anniversary shows. What do you think his reaction would be? Well, he was, uh, it's, that's a great question. I think that, uh, it's, you know, the instinct is tracking up with something clever or pithy, but there's nothing there. I think the truth is like that kid was so, um, I really always wanted to do 
this. I, I wanted, I mean, and by this, I don't mean anything really more than like write songs and play them. Uh, that was from, from about like, um, it's a, that's identifiable to me from about like 11. You know what I mean? Was that it was like, oh, that's, at that point, I also still wanted to maybe like had it in the back of my head that there was an outside chance I could be the second baseman for the Mets or something. But I also was like, I saw once songs and also once I kind of realized like you could sort of, you could sort of do it. You could sort of, and we've talked at points, but about like the democratization of that process, introduction to punk and folk too, which is like three chords and the truth or whatever. And then punk was the version of that. And things like smells like teen spirit being like a kind of pop music. That's that also wasn't, but was like four chords over and over again. I was like, Oh, you can, you can do that. That looks like something one could do. Um, I knew that from then. And it's so funny that like 2002, if I go to then like miracle of 86, the band I was in prior, we had been, uh, we'd done, we'd hit a stride. We had done some, some touring. We were making Mike Skinner had joined the band. We had, we were making this every famous last word record. There was like a late, a little label involved. I, you know, had done, we had done a little bit of touring. I think we, there was like some regional local momentum building up in a, in a sort of modest way. And I was doing more stuff under my own name too. Cause there was all this spillover songwriting wise. So there was like stuff happening, but even by that time, am I paused? Is it happening again? So you were, we were talking about what I would say to the 2002 version. If I knew, are you there? You yeah, I'm here. Okay. If I knew if you were, if someone was like, Oh, in 2022, you'll be doing like 20th anniversary shows. That was basically it. Mm -hmm. um, I think I would have been pleased to know that I was still doing it and in a way that was in whatever, like sort of um, in whatever um, particular and specific way was like public facing, you know, like still was making music and still was making music that was engaging with some kind of audience. I also was like a pretty chaotic person when I was 22 years old. So I'm sure I would have, <laughs> I probably might've received that in a bunch of ways, but I, I never had like, even as I started to eke towards like making some very, like, you know, before like making a living at it, making some amount of your living at it while working at other jobs and stuff, I never really had like a grand vision that I was gonna be like, you know, I don't know, famous or like wealthy from playing music. <laughs> it didn't really occur to me. That might sound like bullshit. I really don't think it is. I don't ever really remember thinking that, you know? So um, I, I, I think at that point I would have been like, I actually genuinely think there's some part of me that would have been like, holy shit, we're like still doing it 20 years from now. That's cool. Um, I also wonder if I would have been, um, it's funny to try to drop back into yourself from 20 years ago. And I suppose that's like part of the task of doing shows like this, right? Is like, you're kind of like culling all of the past versions of yourself and like inviting them into a space, I guess, playing any show where you play stuff from your back catalog is a version of that. Um, but I, I'd like to think I would have just been pleased to find out I was still doing it. Yeah. I mean, I, cause I think, you know, like, I do feel like 20 years is 
sort of a real kind of milestone because it's also, especially, you know, with some of the bands in kind of the scene that you've been part of, it tends to almost be like the time people decide to break up, like me without you, you know? Well, totally. And it's also, I think that it's like, it's an, it's unspeakable to think about it being, that being real, you know, like I'm like 20 years, like, how did that happen? And in particular, how did the last 10 years happen? Cause we did that show at Webster hall um, in 2012. That was like a 10 year anniversary thing. And we played, it's like, I played my first record first. And then the band that existed at that time played um, between the concrete and clouds. And then the band that had made split the country, split the street played that record. It was just like three records, two different, three different versions of, me <laughs> plus a band two totally different bands and then a solo set and i think that was because that was the end of the record cycle for concrete and clouds and split the country and circle had just gotten reissued or issued in circles case on vinyl so it was like well, why don't we do something to commemorate the 10 years i feel like that just happened you know and that was like 10 years ago um so I definitely agree that it's sort of 20 years does feel significant. It also feels like, like, how did that happen? And I suppose it's like some combination of like not dying, <laughs> the like sort of like stubbornness involved, especially in like a, um, I, I was going to say post pandemic, but you know what I mean by that post the initial thrust of the current right, right. pandemic. Um, you know, obviously when like, people like Lord are writing essays about how hard it is to be a touring musician right now. It's, <laughs> it's, it's no joke. Um, and uh, so, you know, you have to, some combination of like relative good health, dogged determination, perhaps, you know, uh, against your better judgment in some ways. But, and I also think like maybe the thing about being a solo artist, even though I'm so frequently in collaboration and the goddamn band is this like, you know, mega fruitful, expansive, um, what's it called? Like collective, but I am ultimately like a person, you know, you kind of can't break up. You can either like stop or not, you know? And, I, and, and I've never really given very serious thought yet to stopping because there's also really not been a reason to. And even like when there's been rougher moments, there's, I haven't taken those as an indication to like quit, you know? Um, but if I were in, I'm amazed that there's any band that, especially ones that don't end up in the golden handcuffs of fame and fortune, <laughs> but that there's any band that like doesn't break up for 20, like me without you making 20 years. That's like, that's not easy. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, it's not hard like working in a coal mine is or something, but it's not easy. That's like, you're trying to keep four people's um, goals in relative alignment and personalities and like um, aesthetic idea ideation or whatever between like very early adulthood and the onset of middle age. Um, that's wild actually, if you think about it, you know? Yeah, I mean, it actually seems like nearly impossible. And like, um you know, not to just nerd out about me without you, but like with well, the we band, can do that. we all right, we can do that. that. Yeah. Like, like it, it, it really like the second half of their career kind of like impresses me so much for the reasons you just said, like, I'm like, they make all these like stylistic departures 
and everybody's on board. Like, it's like, there was never like, oh, someone's leaving because they hate the new direction, you know, mm-hmm. like, or, okay, maybe I'm wrong, but. No, um, I think that's relatively true. I, I mean, given the the time that I, with them in specific in the last 10 years, um, I think Greg might've stepped away for a minute at some point, but I think that had more to do with just like life stuff. That's what, that's the understanding that I, I mean, you would know more than me, but I, it, it seemed to be more of like a need this personally thing and not like, I hate the new record thing. I definitely think that's correct. And I think that, um, you know, and I think there are examples of that, but they're fewer and further between. And I think especially like, you know, I, I make like bad tongue in cheek jokes about like golden handcuffs or whatever. But I do think that when you're like, I get why. I don't know Coldplay. I don't know those people. They may mm-hmm. they may believe in everything they do, like fully, right? Um, but I could see why it would be like harder to leave Coldplay than it would, even if you like woke up in 2011 and thought like, I don't really like this anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it might be really hard. <laughs> I mean, look at like, uh, look at like West Borland. Like he's like right. open in interviews. Like I hate Limp Biscuit. I hate the music, but it's like, he's going to, if he wants food on the table, he's got to be in Limp Biscuit. Well, correct. Or, and I think that, that, that there's a, there's a, this might sound hopelessly naive, but I think it's like, there's also something to be said about like what kind of food and on what kind of table. <laughs> sure. Like you can make choices about that, but you got to make them with an awareness of like, yeah, Wes Borland's going to uh, eat different, and outfit his house different or his living space different if he's the guitarist in Limp Bizkit than if he's whatever that guy wants to be doing when he's not from what I understand he like makes art and does kind of a little bit more he does like electronic music I think right he he like performed at Moog Fest as a solo artist yeah right right yeah interesting everybody's got so many sides but um but no I think I think you know I remember hearing when and and this is uh, I, I, I think I'll be able to draw the line or draw the analog, but I remember hearing when, um, you know, when like pavement got back together the first time and prior to that, when like the Pixies did and that started to kind of be a thing in like the indie rock world mm-hmm. first. I remember pre-breakup, pre-divorce Thurston Moore saying like the word, when they were like doing interviews for a, a new Sonic Youth record in whatever, 2011, whenever that would have been, was like, yeah, the stupidest thing we've ever done is not break up. Because like if Sonic Youth broke up and then got back together three to five years later, we'd be playing like, you know, venues twice the size (laughs) or whatever. And I mean, you know, who's to say if that's true, but I understood the point. You know what I mean? Like there is something, it's like a double-edged thing sometimes to be like the the one that kept going. even if what you're making continues to be vital. And to me, like that's certainly more like what I've always thought was a relative, maybe I'm bouncing around, but I think it all is within the confines of what we're talking about. Sure. Like, I feel like what I've always felt was a relative benefit for me and continue to feel this about being like, a, there are drawbacks and benefits to being like an entity that is a name, like one person's name, right? One of the drawbacks is particularly if it's like, and I, 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 I'm okay with this. In fact, I like this, but I think because I'm 
The assumption is, of course, when you're a person's name that you are likely like whatever solo artist is typically identified. If you're not like a singer in certain genres of music that are more like sort of like pop or R&B identified, maybe if you're like in this world, you're like a singer songwriter. Right. But a singer songwriter kind of is supposed to mean certain things. And if you make music that sort of like doesn't always do that, then that's a little confusing because it's like a bunch of different things at the same time. <laughs> and that can be a little confusing from a like marketing perspective. And I think also like the more music you make, the more challenging it can be for people to like find an entry point to your catalog. Cause they go look at your stuff and they're like, what the fuck? There's like 160 songs here. Like, where do you start? Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you're someone like me, it's like, well, which part, which kind of thing do you like because there's like punkish records and there's like folkish records and there's like chamber popish records and there's you know so it kind of is like you can be i've always thought that there's a unifying voice in all of it but i think it's i there's a bunch of different kinds of stuff that someone can drop into for better and for worse um i also think if you're someone like me and you've been mostly a van and trailer act in mostly like you know clubs and small theaters or whatever it is challenging to like keep a band together for more than, you know, a year or two because you kind of people have to make a living, you know, so it's kind of hard to there are like, what's the word logistical issues with that that then inform aesthetic choices, right? Or like certain things that there's like a, an interplay there that might not be sexy to talk about, but is true is <laughs> mm -hmm. like an actual thing. Um, but the other side is you become like a really creative problem solver. And if you are willing to be like flexible and fluid and you do have an interest as I do in like making a bunch of different things that are not super singular genre specific or presentation and what's the word for uh, arrangement, right? Arrangement and presentation specific. You kind of get to be like six bands at once depending, or you know, you get to sort of do whatever you want and especially if you're like unencumbered by worrying too much about like the commercial impacts of that like i've always felt like if i can have just enough people <laughs> who like it to like justify its continued existence then that's like an amazing victory um but also it means like i can do things like collaborate with a ton of different people and not have it like conf uh, conflict with my primary brand or whatever or I can like go do get in somebody's van and go do or bus and be like this, you know, go be the support like I did with me without you, like I'm about to do with not a surf, like I've done with a bunch of bands where it's like you get like a bunk in the bus and you go like do a tour with them, you know, like I can't do that if I'm a band, but I can do that if I'm willing to get up and like get really comfortable playing my songs in ways that feel dynamic and compelling by myself. And I think those things inform. Uh, aesthetic flexibility and also inform an opportunity to be at 20 years when you've had like, I've never played a show for my own career that was in front of more than 1300 people, like under my own name, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, 1300 people and the vast majority of the shows have not been there. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right, um, right. Which is also why it feels kind of appropriate to do these 20th anniversary shows and like Baby's All Right and St. Vitus. That's like the kind of place, even if in New York I can play bigger places and even if in new york for something like this we kind of probably could have even gone like a step above and tried it although who knows in covid world um that's like where i've lived since i was like 14 
playing the Rock Palace on Staten Island. Like the vast, if there was a pie chart of my shows, <laughs> the vast majority of them have been in places that were like 250 to 500 capacity rooms, you know? Yeah. Um, so if any of that makes sense, that's all of that verbiage is just to say like, I think it's, if you catch me on the wrong day, I can completely be in some self-lacerative fit about like, that's strong language. I can be self-judgmental about like adhering too closely to more culturally codified ideas about success. But in truth, I don't know, to have like a 20 year career in arts and entertainment, particularly like the, at the, uh, in the um, era of the death of guitar music mm-hmm. <laughs> as a cultural presence, um, in, a, in, a, in like a mainstream way and to do it in a way that's like basically more or less true to yourself and more or less independent give save for a couple of sliding door industrial moments I recognize that if someone else told me that about their career I would think they'd won the lottery you know what I mean but that doesn't always mean you think it about yourself of course sometimes you're like well it would be cool to have like 10% of person X's audience <laughs> or cultural capital or capital capital. (laughs) But most of the time I'm like able to see like, no, I kind of think I'm right where I'm supposed to be, which is like, and it's a fucking amazing thing to have sold out babies. All right. St. Vitus two months before the shows, especially now, like nothing taken for granted. Now there's no way to you even know if like 60 people are going to come see you play. Uh, Cause everything's nuts. You know, Lord just told us about it. It's a hard time. Yeah. (laughs) yeah for for lord but yeah you know so i'm that's i'm not that was i agreed with what lord said i'm just saying like if even people who are like and i feel the pressure too i mean i thought a show wasn't going to sell out and then the last two thousand tickets sold in the 10 days before the show (laughs) i'm like man some of us would kill for that kind of pressure but uh but i do understand the point it's like it's not easy right now all the way up the chain you know so the fact that people are coming to these shows is pretty pretty uh it's very cool so for sure yeah um and yeah it's great that they're you know sold out in advance i mean especially being these intimate places i'm sure they're going to be like awesome full of just fans who know all the words and like Mm. um but uh yeah you said a lot of stuff that i want to respond to um one of which is you can tell me to shut up at any point. No, 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 it's all it's all good. It's it's all good. It's just got my brain going in like four different directions. Well, that's how um, I live. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, your new record, uh, nothing's real, so nothing's wrong. I I, I think it's like maybe one of my favorites of yours. Um oh, that's and, great. Yeah. And you were talking about, you know, the way maybe your arrangements have varied album to album and like yeah, like this one's got like strings, synths, like it's, I think you threw around the term chamber pop. I mean, I feel like that fits this. Mm -hmm. Um, There's like parts that even feel to me like a little psychedelic. I don't Mm -hmm. know if that wasn't, yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And like, I was like, okay, like, like, it sounds like you, I mean, it's your voice, your songwriting style, like it sounds like you, but like presentation wise, so different. Um, And it was, you know, like, especially I think, this far into an artist's career like this kind of what I was a little bit what I was saying too about me without you is like it impresses you even more because you're like Mm. you're not settling into like oh just make the record that everyone thinks I'm gonna make you know and and it's also not like the other thing where it's like I'm gonna go way in some other direction that nobody wants me to do it like 
um, which I always think artists should do if they want to do, but you know, um, but this is like that perfect kind of like, it sounds like you, but it doesn't sound like your other records. And I think that's why it sounds so fresh and exciting. Uh, and well, I, I, I mean, fuck you just, that's, um, thank you. <laughs> sure. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's really, I mean, I, and that's the thing I kind of, I'm glad you brought it back to that thread. Cause something I was going to say is, or something that the reason I kind of went down that road, one of the roads in that last, brick of talking was like I definitely feel like if the primary if you are fortunate enough to have like the very tenuous intersection between um even if it doesn't always feel like fortune because it's, it can be a narrow space but like I feel like I've been able to basically make exactly the music I've wanted to make every time we made a re we made a record um without having to worry too, too much about like, sort of like even how the audience would react to it with respect to say the record prior, right? Or like whatever. Now, part of that's because if you make records and you don't have a moment where it's like a record becomes like, you know, um, sort of more of a cultural ubiquity, even in like corners of the playground, like indie rock or emo or punk, whatever. You know, I've always kind of been like, there's, I've, I have my camp, and each record I've made has its camp, but it's not the biggest camp, you know, but it's a very passionate one. And I think what's cool is like, I've never really felt like the audience wanted me to do anything, the core audience, the core audience. I've never really felt like they wanted me to do anything other than whatever I was moved to do after, after a certain point anyway. Um, and some of them, you know, it's like natural that some people are going to like not just one record more than other records, but one phase of your career, if you're fortunate enough, enough to A, have a career and B, have phases. There's going to be people who like like one more than others or whatever, and, and, they'll, and they'll weave in and out or like certain aesthetic choices more than others. But for me, I always felt like the only, I, I, you start, I think it's like you start fucking up when you start thinking about how to, for me, how to try to um, write to curry favor. You know what I mean? Like, I, like if I was like, well, uh, I need to write like Brother's Blood again. It'd be like, how? I don't know how to do that. I don't, I don't, not because that song's like um, some untouchable or that record's like some, that's not what I mean. I just mean like, I think if you start trying, for me, if you start trying to like um, self-consciously uh, replicate yourself to like, um, you know, sort of like please people, <laughs> that's, that's probably gonna be a bad prescription, bad recipe. Um, and I think, you know, you have the relative freedom to do that if you fall into a very small, sometimes sweet, some people might not feel like it's a sweet spot. But for me, it's like, I'm not famous, but I have an audience. I'm not wealthy, but I make a living making music. And so I'm sort of like, I think it's different if you're in a band that's like operating several leagues above me with respect to um, cultural presence or something, because then there is more of a fear of like, they're going to go away, you know? Um, if, this, if that makes sense. Cause I think you, once you get to a certain place, you just want to, it's the, it's kind of like disease and more stuff. You just want to like keep them and, and, and you want to keep um, 
putting that food on that table, mm-hmm. <laughs> that particular food on that particular table. And I think for me, it's always been like, I just hope if I'm like true to my instincts about what to make, that enough people, even if it's not their favorite record, will be like, well, that's cool. He keeps trying different things. But it's still, as you said, my hope is also like, because I'm not, it's like, it's not like Instigator was like an abstract German techno record. And then this record was like a hip hop record. <laughs> and then the next record's like, they're all within the bandwidth of like guitar, pop, guitar, rock, guitar, you know, mm-hmm. but they're different expressions of a thing, different corners of a thing. And your songwriting voice is your songwriting voice. But to me, it's like, if you keep trying to push yourself to just get a little better at a different thing each time and a little um, and, and to explore corners of expression each time. And sometimes it's like microscopic. Like I feel like Bubblegum was like a pop, you know, punk pop record for me. That that's for, for, there's people that might hear that record and think it's neither. But for me, that was like an expression of that side of my personality. And then I felt like Instigator was like, they were cousins like that, but Instigator is more like a power pop record. It's a little sweeter. It's like a little rounder, you know, mm-hmm. but, it, but they both live in the, like, it's the chorus, step on the pedal and raise your voice. Right. Right. Often. But I think like they're just they're but they're feeling out different corners of a thing and nothing's real to me is like, that was just how that record came together. There were choices, there were choices, but even the touchstones, it wasn't like I was like, we were still talking about the Beatles. We were still talking about, you know, uh, maybe instead of like in utero, we were talking about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, but really if you zoom the camera way up, like you or I might think there's a big difference between records like that, but somebody who has like no, um, depth of familiarity with like, American indie rock of the late 20th and early 21st century, they might mm. hear all that stuff and be like, this is all kind of the same shit. Right, <laughs> you know what right. I mean? So totally. I think it's like kind of about how you, and I, you know, uh, to me, it's, 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 that is also one of the fortunate, I, I do believe whether I'm right or wrong about this and whether my audience has contracted or not, like I can't even really tell anymore, but I think that, um, one of the things that has maybe enabled me to have a long career is that I keep, I, I don't really, for better and for worse, like rest on my laurels or try to remake the same music over and over again. And again, there are people who would hear all of my music and be like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? All of this sounds the same, but that's not how I feel. And I don't think that's how like my core audience feels, you know? So if any of that makes sense. Yeah. Definitely. And I think, you know, oh, like, oh sorry, sorry, sorry. One thing ahead. I would say too, that's also why I, I felt I have had something of a fitful experience, like fitting in with certain scenes, genres, moments, whatever. I was in New York playing at Brownies and Don Hills and Wetlands and Mercury Lounge and pianos and, uh, you know, Lux and North Six and all those places when like all of that meet me in the bathroom stuff was happening. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I was like, Playing and I was playing with some of those bands and I've played and I was certainly playing Long Island with like bunches of then same weekend sometimes like Friday with that stuff and then Saturday with like pop punk bands and then um, then I'd go play like singer songwriter clubs and play with like people like Sean Colvin or something you know like people who mm-hmm. were like you know 
I never fully fit in any of those places, but I think that's why I found such solidarity at some point with people like um, the bands I really connected to uh, in Waves were bands that were like, someone like me without you. I don't really sound like me without you, but what I identified with was like, they just kept trying different shit within their like corner of things. And I think that's what they identified with me about, you know, I can't speak for them, but there was a, and I could name other bands like that too, obviously at various points, brand new or Manchester orchestra or it's, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But those, those, that there's more, but those are ones I think of where it was like at a certain point, it was people just like trying things. And it was less about like, we sound the same than it was like, well, we don't really fit anywhere else right now. <laughs> we kind of fit a bunch of places, but there was like more of a, not to use a cheesy word, but like spiritual, philosophical, you know, thing that made some sense. So that's kind of how that stuff ended up falling together, I feel like. Yeah, 100%. I mean, and we talked a little bit about this when we did that Vans talk, um, which, you know, is not available now, so we can rehash some of that stuff. Um, but uh, that's always been one of my favorite things about artists like yourself and the others you just named. Like, um, it's, as a listener, and I mean, I guess, you know, I can only speak for myself and probably my friends who are kind of like-minded, but like, it's fun to follow those artists because like, it's the kind of artists that can grow with you. Like, I, I don't like, you know, like the bands who are like, all right, we've established our sound on our first record. We're going to do this like 13 times. Mm -hmm. You can, maybe their 13th record is good. Like I, maybe it is, but I think you hit a point where you're like, I've kind of gotten from you what you are able to give me. I don't mm -hmm. like need, but like it's when, you know, when like a band like, you yourself or like me without you or Manchester Orchestra like each new record is like it's giving you what you like but it's also taking you somewhere new and it's challenging you and it's pushing you as a listener to maybe like explore something I mean I remember like to talk about Manchester Orchestra when they put out Mean Everything to Nothing which was so heavier and rawer than their mm -hmm. first record and they were like name dropping like Nirvana in interviews and I mean I'm, I was already like into Nirvana and stuff but like they kind of reconnected me with like some of my grunge fandom um, by oh, totally making that record, you know, and like, um, and, and it wasn't their first record and it wasn't immediately what I was hoping they would do, but like, it, it's an awesome record, you know? Well, I do. And that's to me, like, that's, that's the gift of influence too, is like, it makes me think of like, like I grew up hearing the Beatles from pre-consciousness. Like I can't even tell you the first time I mm -hmm. heard a Beatles song because I'm sure I'm sure by the time I identified hearing them, I some part of me was cellularly was like, oh, we already know this music. <laughs> but maybe it was like, you know, when I was four or something is the first time I like tracked that it was whatever, Yellow mm -hmm. Submarine or I Want to Hold Your Hand or something. But then there were these waves of like, but, you know, Beatles were my mom's music, right? Or whatever. Dylan was my mom's music. Joni Mitchell, whatever these things. And then like, you know, being 12, and having like Kurt Cobain talk about like scratch acid or butthole surfers or opening up this whole world of like underground rock music, but also talking about the Beatles and like hearing the Beatles in that music and being like, oh. And then six years later, having been in my own bands for six years, right? And like starting to play places and being a college student and getting into like Elliot Smith 
and really being like, well, this sounds totally like itself, but picking the Beatles parts out in it. You know what I mean? Like being like, there's, and hearing him talk about that. And he talked about it in a way that was much more like um, chordal, structural when he would talk about it, shapes and colors kind of thing. And being like, and then like you get to reconnect to the Beatles three times by 20 through different lenses because you're like these other people that you love or are influenced by or are, are reconnecting. It's same thing for someone like Dylan. I was like, Dylan is like, you know, that's my mom's music. That's that guy that I can't really sing. A lot of words. It was almost like self-parodic, my experience of that music as a kid, like the wheezing, like, eh, you know, whatever. And then getting into like more colorful, vivid, whether it was through things initially like R.E.M. or someone like Elliot, who really has very little aesthetic similarity to Bob Dylan besides they both played acoustic guitar at some point. But, you know, language, I think, and, and um and a certain kind of, and then getting into punk and the politics of punk and that being a through line back to the politics of folk, right? Or, or certain things, uh, leftist stuff and being like drawn back to this thing and having it become like yours. Um, I think that's such a gift of the lineage of music. Um, and if you, meaning like someone like me who plays music in a niche public facing way for whatever amount of people engage with it, like if I'm part of that for anybody ever, <laughs> that's like the coolest shit in the world. And I would also say like what you said about growth, that's literally like, you know, when people are like, what do you hope people get from your when people, by the way, I don't mean like the throngs of people who meet me at airports when I land. I mean, like whatever in an interview and somebody might say like, what do you hope people get from your record or from your music? When I have no idea how to answer that besides like, um, it's just cool that they engage with it. And I hope they get anything from it that is like of, 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 of meaning and substance and whether that meaning and substance is like, it's just fun. <laughs> and it's a, like opportunity to like, disengage or re-engage with whatever you know corners of self and i hope that they feel like the person delivering it to them is delivering it with um something like um commitment commitment's a big word for me but what i really feel like is like the only thing you could the, the highest to me like the peak desire is like how cool if your audience wants to grow with you and let you grow with them rather than consigning you to the like nostalgia bin of like, you know what I like, and I'm sure there are, I know there are people for whom it's like, I am like, um, make the clocks move or I am brother's blood or I am bubble, like whatever, you know, whatever record someone came in on and they might've never listened to another record again, or they might've listened to another record and decided it wasn't for them. And they, I, there's certainly people who've had that really thing you just said that before that was like, I've gotten what I needed to get from you. Of course, I, I don't, no matter how fragile our egos are as artists and entertainers or whatever the fuck, like, I don't believe that people come in the door and stay in the door forever. I know that some do. And if you have some that do, that's like incredibly meaningful, but a lot of people come in and go out. Right. But I definitely think that's the thing. Like when I see people at the shows that are like, that I literally met when I was like 22 and they were like a kid in high school or my age, and then they're like, and they were like coming to shows with their folks or they were like people that I would like, you know, who are my age, you like, you know, play a show and then 
you'd like have a drink at the bar with them or whatever, when those people are like still around and they know the words to like something on nothing's real, I'm like, holy shit. Like that's something if you told the 2002 person, even as kind of chaotic as I was, <laughs> if you had said like, they'll still be here, some of these people, and they'll like your new stuff too. I would be like, wow, I get, I have new stuff in 2022 and these people still like it. That's crazy. So I totally think that's like, that's like the highest compliment I think your audience can pay you. Cause I don't mean to shit on anything that is everyone's just trying to get through. And I understand. And also it's so cool if your stuff meant anything to anybody ever. Right. But there is something about the kind of like codified nostalgia thing. And I don't mean commemorating like anniversaries of records or I think that's great. And is in fact encouraged because I think it's an opportunity to like communicate with yourself. But I remember seeing something like when we were young, that festival mm -hmm. and just thinking like, and I have friends who played it and I'm sure it was super fun and like fucking 60,000 people were there. But there's, and, and that, you know, some of those bands are obviously still very thriving and very vital, but there was something about it that I can't help, but I could, and this may, might make me, I think I am a little bit of a like naive person in some ways sometimes about like, I think my internalizations of like the politics of the early nineties indie rock scene or whatever outgrowths of things like, you know, Discord and Fugazi and later things like what happened when some of my heroes tried to engage with <laughs> cultural centrality, right? Like mainstream success, like my internalizations of that stuff seem pretty different than a lot of people's, um, not everybody's, but a lot of people's, which is like, I really have like a wary eye <laughs> about a lot of those forces. And there's something about that kind of a festival. It's like, I just want people to have fun and I want my friends to make a living, right? But I also just, I'm like, there's something about that that just feels so, I couldn't help but feel like a little sad about it. And then maybe that makes me sound like an asshole. I hope it doesn't. But there was just something about it that just felt a little like, um, huh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't know. Maybe that's splitting hairs, right? Because that's, that's, I'm sure everyone who was there loved it you know and and they and that's what the point is right but there's something about um i trust you understand what i'm saying i probably don't have to break it apart too much but th there's something about a certain kind of like um <laughs> i don't know it feels a little bit like uh it's like a halloween show or something but the costume is yourself and that feels sad to me, even if it's like you make a lot of money to do it. And that's not what everybody was doing there. You know what I mean? But there's something about that that can feel a little like that's not really of interest to me. And luckily, no one called me and asked me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to have that not be of interest to me. But I hope any of that made sense. But there yeah, you go. For sure. So, yeah, when we were young, um, I Which have, I hope I didn't sound no. You know, you, you know. definitely you definitely didn't. I don't think you said anything that you know people aren't saying and thinking. Um, my I my take on that festival is first of all I think the name is the whole reason 
we're even having this conversation like <laughs> riot fest books like the same band totally you know totally. like yeah, um totally. and i'm like That's i wish they point. didn't call it that because it it's I, I think my take is they called it that so they're telling you off the bat it's like i don't know did you hear about that new there's a cruise called the emo's not dead cruise oh and i get I the mean, same vibe like why do you have to call it that so you call it that and then what you do is i think you influence people on the internet or who were attending the festival or whoever it is to now start calling it like emo nostalgia fest. And it's like, but why? Like, I mean, the headliners are My Chemical Romance and Paramore. They both put new songs out this year. Like, why does it have to be nostalgia? Like, I mean, the, like Paramore is about to release a great record. I have no idea if My Chem is making a record, but they probably are. And like, um, you know, like, just like Paramore's existed for only like 17 years. Like we're talking about 20 years. They're less than that. Like they're like on the top totally. of the world making relevant music, really totally. popular, really great Arguably music. more, more relevant than ever. Yeah. To, I, I to think popular culture. I yeah. think a hundred percent. I mean, they're, they're opening for Taylor Swift this year. And, I was gonna say, <laughs> and, and also like she gets invited out to sing at Coachella with Billie Eilish, yeah. who's oh. arguably the coolest big right. pop star of the moment. You know what I mean? So yeah, hundred totally. percent. So it's like, I just think that the name makes people act that way about it. And then I think what you end up doing in a way is like when, when that becomes a conversation is like, you're kind of hurting the music because you're just beating into the ground this like stigma that it's always had that like if you make like punk or emo or something in this world like you appeal to people for maybe three four years of their life and then it becomes nostalgia for them and like like I don't want to name names I don't want to throw anybody under the bus but I like saw a band in that world a few years ago and they more or less apologized for the fact they were about to play a new song and then they were like we know you're here to hear like our 2002 record at like <laughs> and only songs from that record and we're gonna like get back to those don't worry and it just it it, it almost didn't even sound like self-deprecating and funny it sounded like they were like yeah we are proudly a nostalgia act and it was like a huge turnoff to me because i'm like maybe not everybody likes your new record but wouldn't it be cooler if you did proudly get on stage and be like here's our new record like we're, we're into it we're happy we made it like that's the mm -hmm. like people might come around to it eventually but not if you're like off the bat being like it shouldn't even exist like you know what I mean? I do. And I, I mean, I think a lot of things about what you just said. I think for one thing, the name is not accidental. Right. Uh, I, I think this is where I'll get into potentially some eye roll inducing corners of <laughs> my, how my relative naivete functions with respect to like social phenomena. When you brand it's the name was the name but also the the um, marketing, the the um, the 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 graphics, mm -hmm. right? They're like stickers on a locker kind of vibe, right? The like that 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 was the the imaging. Mm -hmm. Yes, like look, we're all aging if we're lucky, <laughs> right? Because the other alternatives, you're dead, right? And as things, and granted, this is obviously there's a lot. Um, a lot of um, column inches or whatever have been filled a bit with this or like things in the timelines, the doom scroll or, or, or whatever online. Like, yes, it's people are not aging into like a assumed financial situations like 
generations of Americans prior, right? But the thought process is like, if you're a little older, everyone wants their, everyone wants their opportunity to sort of like rehash the glory days. <laughs> the boomers have done it for a very long time, mm-hmm. right? And so there's sort of um, diminished versions of it as you move through generationally, because there's been great diminishment in opportunity <laughs> and how people get to express those things. But that's what this was, right? This is like maybe somewhat premature, but because the culture moves so fast now and the co-opting rapaciousness of it is so vast and, and, and total, <laughs> you get to like, yeah, you, this is basically, you, you, it was a nostalgia experience for people who are like 28 years old or something, mm-hmm. which is fucking crazy, but that's what it is. To, sorry, those are subjective, judgy sounding words. It's crazy. What I mean by it is not crazy that anyone makes a choice to engage in it on either side, audience or performer. It's just crazy that that's where we're at. It, right. that, that, I just mean the reality is crazy. Um, and, you know, I think that the thing is about like the, 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 the assumption that I think it was branded that way on purpose because it's a capitalistic enterprise. They want to sell a shitload of tickets and crash the ticket site and have a bunch of people come. You know, of course, it's like a thing they want to make. That things they they probably were paying people unbelievable amounts of money to play that thing, especially first year, right? Get it off the ground, and like they wanted, so so of course it's gotta and and what it was was like how, probably what's the best and most effective way to do that? Well, of course, book the that like the thing that everyone I feel like when they first saw that bill was like, how are they even gonna do this? Right, like like logistically, um, but also it was like there are like, you know. Uh, I think that the thought process is like, how, what's the best and most effective way? And it is to do exactly the, you know, what I would say and what you might say is like the lowest common denominator thing. And in so doing, you like reinforce exactly what has always been the major um, hurdle for like this scene of music, right? Which mm-hmm. is like that it's not to be taken seriously. Um, and it's very complicated the relationship that I know like I've had and a bunch of people have had to that because like there were certain points in my career where regardless of what the music I was making sounded like because of some of the bands I was touring with sometimes (laughs) certain other bands that were more consistently written about in certain places or more consistently kind of like um uh, circulated in certain like cultural corners, some of whom were like friends of mine, would be like hesitant to do things with you because they didn't want like the stink of emo adjacency <laughs> on them. Even if you were like, like, I remember making Put Your Ghost to Rest and Rob Schnaff listening, we were like listening to something in what's it called, um, like playback. At one point, he was like, Do people call your music emo? And I was like, yeah, sometimes. And he was like, why? And I was like, I don't know. I just think it means a lot of things. And I think there's some, I've had, there's some things in the music that I get, you know, and he's like, but it's just like songs. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, well, no, I know. And he was like, do they call Elliot's music emo? And he was genuinely asking from a position of almost like, uh, like blissful ignorance, you know, from wherever he was. And I was like, some people do, but I would call those people like pretty misguided. Like they're just saying that because he sounds, it's like minor key or something. It's like sounds quote unquote sad. And he was like, 
That's crazy. It was almost like bemused, you know, but that's mm-hmm. just to say like that word has definitely had a loaded history that has moved around over time. And it's just to say like, I think they're right. Riot Fest and then Riot Fest books, a whole bunch of other very cool shit. That's like not super in that wheelhouse, but most of what Riot House does is very much in that Riot House. Riot Fest <laughs> does is very much in that wheelhouse. And I think they brand what they do a different way. And but I think like why people do it and why sometimes people like in bands will like denigrate their new material in fealty to the audience's relationship to their old material is a more complicated thing. That's a bit more about like the fragility of ego and about like what, um, it's almost like if I beat you to the punch, it won't hurt as much when you punch me kind of a thing and also i think at some level too it's like we internalize whatever version of like uh external affirmation validation quote-unquote stardom whatever like and you know there are people i could certainly also it's like you know who wants to name names but there's like certain things where you're like i do think at certain points some people make like a pact with themselves it's kind of like even if to diminishing, I'm going to use that word again, but like spiritual, even if it's diminishing spiritual returns, um, I'm going to kind of like, you know, it's like Han Solo frozen and whatever it was, carbonite or whatever that was. Like, you're like, I'm that version of me forever because that's the version, at least in a public facing way, because that's the version of me that is the most like, like lucrative in a way. And that's kind of dark to me, but also like we live in the world and I get it. Uh, and there's some point where people are like, you just want to keep having the, um, the validation and the affirmation. And yes, you want to feed your family or feed yourself. And also like you want people to keep looking at you, you know, and if the way to keep people looking, at, even if it's like they're looking at you and it's a little bit like you've become like kind of a cartoon it's still better for some people than not being looked at. Does that make sense? And I, yeah. and I think, and I think that's for me that I, I try to keep a, that's a mirror for one thing. And for a second thing, it's also a, like, don't hate the player, hate the game. It's like, I remember being in like a, a basement somewhere at one point in like the early aughts with like after Occupy Wall Street with my friend, who's a member of the Marxist humanist initiative and me and some of his friends, wide range of ages, and people into their 60s and 70s in a small book group reading Marx's Capital. (laughs) I remember one of the people turning and saying like, basically about like how we, the unavoidable capitulations and contradictions you have to engage with if you, basically unless you're Ted Kaczynski and like live out in the fucking woods somewhere. You know what I mean? Like if you completely, and even then like, obviously where it doesn't end well for Ted Kaczynski, I'm not saying that's the way to go. But what I mean is like, if you're going to live in the world and the system is the world, then you have to, yeah, you're going to sometimes be, what's the word, like um, contradictory, right? Self-contradictory because you have to capitulate to reality. And it's kind of like, don't hate the player, hate the game thing. There was a phrase that this person turned and said, which is like, well, you know, Marx would say that people were not meant to be self-negating angels, meaning like we're going to do shit sometimes in the in the pursuit of like feeding ourselves or maintenance of cultural capital, (laughs) that's going to be like, kind of like 
at best a little complicated, contradictory, what maybe some people, it's like pointing out everyone's hypocritical and capitalism is kind of like uh, shooting at the uh, clown with, you know, with the bubble, the balloon attached to its head at the fair. It's like a, not a moving target. Everyone's a hypocrite <laughs> in right. capitalism because you have what it would, unless you're like um, actively, you know, gluing yourself to the means of oil production to try, try to dismantle the system. Um, but I you know, like how I got from where, when we were young to that, but I just mean like, I, that's what I, that's what I think is going on at, in those moments is it's just like, everyone just wants people to still be looking at them and you and you still want to be able to like pick, pick up your guitar and play your song for people. And that's actually, to me, <laughs> that's actually more like sad than it is anything else if that makes sense and then i think what you have to, if you're trying to like figure out a way to navigate that with like your relative wits intact is that sometimes you're just going to have to be all right with playing to like sometimes it's like well hopefully 65 people come to the show in buffalo tonight <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and then you hope, you know, and, and I don't know, there's, there's like an infinite spectrum of ways you can look at like what is success and what is not. And I think my career is a really interesting case study in that because there's a lot of things that you could say are like marks of like real success. And there's also a lot of people who would like a life in music that would never want my career. You know what I mean? Like they don't want to drive the car and sell the merch and settle with the promoter and... <laughs> And and sometimes it's not like I want to do that every time either, but it's but this is the way that feels best to me in the sense that it's the the, the best cross section between like it's like a getting to do the things that matter to me about it with as minimal involvement with the shit we just I just spent fifteen minutes awkwardly rambling about to you. <laughs> And, and that means sometimes there's like, those are Pyrrhic victories. Like sometimes you're going to like lose shit in the face of that. Right. Um, but I don't know, like, look, if it were up to me, NPR would have written uh, glowingly about nothing's real. So nothing's wrong. And so would a bunch of other places, you know what? Like, I don't, I can't quite tell you why certain things I've done if I'm being egotistical and boldly, baldly honest with you. I would put my body of work up against any number of my peers who've been in making music in adjacent scenes for the last 20 years, who've had more cultural and commercial kind of capital success, but I don't get to, I'm not the arbiter of that. You know what I mean? And I Mm -hmm. also, if I start to live in that, then I'm actually ignoring all of the fucking amazing shit that has happened. And there's been so much of it, you know, like, if you had told that kid at 2002, any of that, like, hey, sometimes like these publications you read, they'll write about your music. I wouldn't have said like, well, how often and about which records? (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm. Or if someone had said like, hey, that venue where you saw Elliot Smith and Pavement and uh, Sunny Day Real Estate and... uh, you know, Modest Mouse and all this other stuff like Cat Power and you're going to headline that venue, Super Chunk. I'd be like, well, on what record and who will be my support act? 
You know what I mean? Like, no, you would just be like, really? <laughs> so I try to keep in contact with that as much as possible because I don't know, reserve the right to be gently astonished by the fact that anyone gives a shit and that they've given a shit for as long as they have without worrying too, too much about why other people didn't. <laughs> and that's, 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 I say that that's a simple sentence, but it's harder to, you know what I mean? Like always live effectively, but I'm trying, Andrew. I'm trying every day. You're doing great. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's very generous. Well, well I know you kind of have to go. Do you have uh, time for one more question or not really? Of course I do. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I want to end on um, a similar but more inspiring note. So we're talking a lot, you know, about... Um, I think what of, I just said was very inspiring. Oh, Andrew. sorry. What, what you just said was very inspiring. <laughs> but, the, 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 but, but, um, but just to counteract all the nostalgia yeah, talk. The Marxist so, harangue before that was a right. more dark. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So you, like I said before, I think you've got a great new record and it comes 20 years after your first. Um, I want to know, like, what are some of the artists that you look to who made a record 20, 30, maybe 40 years into their career where you're like, wow. okay, yeah. And the ones like that give you that, you know what I mean? Totally. I think Sinead made a record in the tens. I can't remember exactly when called theology. That was like, what the fuck? Like it was so good. <laughs> and it was like some crazy sprawling double record where one part was like a folk. She got into real and she was always kind of into reggae here and there, but she got like into some weird cross section between like folk, folk and reggae which sounds like it might be terrible, but she, with her voice and her sensibility, I remember listening to that record on tour with Mike Fadum. And it was just like, we were both like, this is so good. And it was like 30 years in, you know, or 25 years in. Leonard Cohen was making records 60 years in that you're like, every, that you, you know, that, that, I mean, that there's there's stuff on those last you want a darker records that record the one prior that you're like old ideas like jesus christ homie like ease up you're fucking 200 years old stop kicking everybody's <laughs> ass and i also think that last bob dylan record i have a very complicated he is canonical top five pure pure like artist and what the work is for me it's it's he's incredible I also think he's kind of like a monumental prick, but the music's the music. And that last record he made that had the Murder Most Foul song on it, the like 18 minute song that was like about like scanning radio stations effectively in the wake of the JFK assassination. That gave me chill. Like that's something that I'm like, they should just excise that and find some way to not like an NFT, but some other way and like put it in the Louvre or something. Just be like, <laughs> like some install, like what's called installation. People can like walk in and just like close their eyes and like experience that in a dark room. That guy's also like 175 years old. Um, those are three off the top of my head. I think Super Chunk still makes vital records. They don't do them frequently, but when they put out records, I'm always like, Super Chunk still sounds like they're 25, you know, and like sprinting. Um, that last record that they made was awesome. The one before that, I think. Bazan, every every new thing Bazan does, and what's when was his first record? 96, 97, right? I think that David is one of the one of the great under. He's plenty sung. There's plenty of people that know that dude's the truth. But I think David's one of those people that is like 
my hope is that like when he's there's like a retrospective you know what i mean that happens at some point with that guy where it's like oh this dude was like one of one in a lot of ways um his music still challenges me every time um those are people off the top of my head i'm sure i could come back to you with more but um oh sean marshall too I don't know her. We we both made records with Schnaff and I've heard some stuff through Rob about her. I know he likes her a lot, but Fiona Apple, those are people, those are people who like they to me, like we might not think of them that way because they're sort of like uh, encased in a in carbonate, like a certain like halcyon moment. But they're like they're like both relatively young in a sense, but they're also people who've been like fucking doing this now in public for 25, 30 years. And those records are always like interesting, challenging, um, idiosyncratic, pushing. So with that stuff off the top of my head, I'm sure I'm leaving out somebody that's going to be like super obvious to me later. I, I mean, of course, you could go like the Radiohead, Wilco, all of that stuff route. But I also feel like something that's, I'll leave it here, like a great, it's inspiring. It's also a little tragic. I, I mean, I would have loved to have heard what Elliot would have been able to do with that music brain, you know, like what Elliot Smith's records in 2023 would have sounded like. Hopefully had he with him having like a fantasy world where he'd like gotten sober at some point <laughs> and like started to like write about different stuff a little bit content wise, but had like that crazy Beatles punk Tchaikovsky, <laughs> Brian Wilson brain, 20 years more practiced, man. I'm sure I would be doing, I'm sure I'd be having a like, Jesus, dude, ease up reaction to whatever he was doing too. So yeah, there's a bunch of them. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again to Kevin. Kevin's latest album, Nothing's Real So Nothing's Wrong is out now. You can get it on purple vinyl at the Brooklyn Vegan Shop, shop.brooklynvegan.com. And I hope you get to catch those shows this January. All right, see you next time. First flick, you signal on. How else would we know it was you?